Welcome to Call It Like I See It podcast. I'm James Keyes, and in this episode of Call It Like I See It, we're going to react to a recent piece which takes a look at how many former Taliban fighters in Afghanistan have come to miss the days of jihad and appear to be growing weary of the monotony of governing. And later on, we're going to take a look at some interesting facts and stories you know, about the participation of Black Americans in the American story from the very beginning, you know, going back to the Revolutionary War and in other conflicts early on, uh, the first 100, 150 years or so of, of the, the United States history, as well as during the United States' first attempt to become a true representative democracy following the Civil War. Joining me today is a man, if you ever got all of his variants in one room, he would be the one who remains. Tunde Ogonlana. Tunde. You have any warnings today for us about any of your other variants? No, but I think my wife does. <laughs> She's had to put up with all of them. I, I actually don't actually recognize all of them and know that how many actually exist. But if you want, to, if you want me to bring her in here, I'm sure <laughs> you and her can have a show about that. So you know, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> we, we can we can we can save our show for next week. You know? <laughs> Just do a show of the two day variants. Got you. Got you. Now, we're recording this on February 20th, 2023, and I want to jump right into our, our first topic today. Uh, you sent me this interesting piece from Vice a week or two ago that includes interviews you know, from several former Taliban fighters, and, and it goes into a lot of discussion about how they missed the days of jihad, and they're just not finding governing and showing up to offices and people looking at them when you know they're hungry and stuff that engaging and that exciting. And so... What did you find about this that was most interesting or what stood out to you in it? It was, <laughs> I found a lot interesting. I mean, I think that, as you said, right, um, just now, like, it, it just stood out to me as the dog that caught the car. Or as yeah. I say, collectively, the Taliban are the dogs that caught one big car called the country. Um, <laughs> and it's just, uh, I guess, it, and, and for the audience, because there's we're not visual here, what's comical to me is the, the photograph that is the leading the article is it appears that it's a guys with RPGs and AK-47s, Taliban guys, like serious looking dudes like that. But they seem to have hijacked a paddle boat from a um, from an amusement park. Because yeah, yeah. They're on a only three of them can fit on there. And it's a paddle boat that's uh, shaped like a swan. Yeah. And I feel like this image is perfect for this <laughs> article because <laughs> It just and looks it's a, like it's credited as a Taliban photo. Like this is yeah, that's what I mean. Like, this. That's what yeah. That's yeah. how they're bragging is. Yeah. <laughs> it's like kind of like the can't get right group. That's what I mean by yeah. it's just. Um, and we'll but, have the the link to the article in the show notes. Yeah. Maybe. So yeah. this one's worth taking a look at. It's just funny, but it's. Um, but on a serious note, I mean, put it this way, and and I'll pass it back here. But it didn't surprise me to see this outcome. Uh, especially from, I would say, the guys in the field, let's say, doing the the, the, the jihad guys that were actually fighting against the yeah. Americans and everyone else, meaning... Yeah, because yeah, they're talking to like a sniper. They're talking to like, they're talking to people who were really fighters, you know, like who yeah. were really doing, yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, clearly there's a difference between being in battle and constantly um, in a kind of that strategic game of taking territory and all this kind of stuff versus, like you're saying, 
sitting there having to worry about the trash getting cleaned up in downtown Kabul or that electricity doesn't work in this part of town and people complaining and, uh, or that, you know, some, some, some contractor that built a building may have done a shoddy job and now some family is scared to live in there. You know, those are actually all old compliance. (laughs) Yeah. Like (laughs) that's bureaucracy and that's government. And that seems to be what jihadists, uh, and, and insurgent type of mindsets, uh, and I could include insurrectionists don't seem to like actually yeah. governing. It's, it takes work and you got to put up with people complaining. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. And, and there's not a lot of quick fixes and you just got to deal with stuff. I mean, I, I think that a lot of times, I mean, what this highlights is the, the difference between the quote unquote idealist and, you know, really the person that can, can get the, put the rubber on the road, you know, so to speak, because yeah, it's like, the, the way they complained about the way their life is now, like, they told, oh, there was a freedom to when we were, you know, doing jihad, you know, like we kind of got to come and go as we pleased. And all we did was, you know, one of the things talking about all we did was plan, you know, attacks and then our escapes, you know, like, and, and so they lament that one of the, you know, I know you, you said when you sent this to me, one of the things you pointed out was like, there's a guy in there complaining that he has to show up at work before eight and stay till after four, Yeah, you know, <laughs> or else he gets docked for that day of pay. And it's like, so what it ended up sounding like is like, that sounds like stuff that people we know would talk about around the yeah. water cooler. Like, oh man, this, this nonsense. I got to deal with it. So it like, it, it, in a sense, it, it shows, shows the, the, you know, like that contrast between like the idealist, like, Hey, I want to, we're going to, we're going to break everything as it is. And we're going to create this amazing thing in the idea kind of, it, it's amazing in their head, but then actually, you know, again, like getting like you, you, you use the term often getting the trains to run on time and so forth, or they use that phrase often, like getting that kind of stuff doesn't just happen on its own. It's almost like the, the, the old school Disney movie where like, it's like, okay, yeah, yeah. At the end of the story, everything works out and everybody's happy. And it's like the idea person, the idealist kind of they don't get to the in their mind it's just like all we got to do is overthrow what's here or stop these people that we don't like and then it's like the the musical cut in and, <laughs> and it's all good like everything everybody starts dancing around in a circle and it's like no nah, like actually, a movie <laughs> the rest of the rest of the stuff has to all be done and that stuff is monotonous and that stuff is boring and but it, it's that's the stuff that actually if you're trying to win a piece, so to speak, that's the stuff that's going to make or break it. Yeah. No, it's it's fascinating because it because it makes me think, too. I mean, and obviously I, I, I'm going to say this from total 30,000 feet and not um, uh, without the, the full detail of, of, of the nuances. But I, I'm wondering if when the Taliban took over uh, in the early 90s, after the whole Mujahideen thing and the, and the fighting with the Soviets in, in the 70s and 80s, um, if this was the same complaint that people had. And I don't know. I'm just, what I'm saying is, it's interesting to me that after 20 years of American occupation and America assisting their government in trying to become somewhat of a you know Western-style government where people have elections at the local level and people get to choose you know, the mayors and the people in town and those people understanding they're going to an elected office to then be responsible to answer these questions by the people. It's like, I feel like maybe there's something to be said about the influence that we had for one generation, that this is now the expectation of the Afghans from their leadership. You know what I mean? Like, I'm I'm just wondering, like, how this is supposed to be how it's done. Yeah, like, this is what they're used to now. They're after 20 years and, you know, because some of these... People are young as well. They interview, they interview someone who's 25 years old. So this is someone that would have been born just before 
um, you know, 1999 or whatever, just before um, the uh, the our occupation of Afghanistan. So I, I'm wondering, it is interesting to me, like, is this what it looks like once people get exposed to certain things being efficient or maybe more efficient than they were prior to um, that when it's taken away or when the insurgents now are running it and they can't run it right, people complain. It's just interesting to me. Well, but I mean, it's not even to say that it may have been run better before, but like, I think what it is actually is that we were, when when the U.S. was there, we were assisting them, okay, quote unquote, them. And what you have to say, okay, well, who is them? It was most likely we were assisting bureaucratically inclined people, people who wanted to be a part of a bureaucracy and to like, there are people that are like that. Hey, I want to show up. I want to, you know, do some good incrementally. I want to, you know, like I'll go be a building inspector or I'll set up codes. There's people who want to do that kind of stuff. And so we were assisting bureaucratically inclined people, but the people they were talking to, and yeah, they, they gave us a range, uh, an age range. Everything was like, you know, 24 to 32 or something like that, or maybe 34 or something, you know, around that age. So, you know, Young, but but full on adults, you know, like yeah. not teenagers or anything like that. And these these folks and I don't I, I say this without judgment. It's just, you know, just an observation. The, they're in these positions more so it appears as a reward for like their loyalty or as like, yeah. OK, well, you've helped the organization take over. So now all you hey, you sniper, you become, you know, the, the this this job, you go be the building inspector. And it's like, what? Building inspector, you know, like, well, and so to the credit, some of them were in security as well. But nonetheless, though, it's like these types of things. These aren't bureaucratically inclined people. These aren't. This isn't. You know, when they when they started saying, "Hey, we got to do these jobs and that jobs," these aren't the guys that would be like, "Hey, that's that's what I've been wanting to do my whole life." Yeah. And so I think part of it is that you're almost taking a fish out of water in that sense because you know the Taliban, the people who are in charge at the high end, want people that they trust in all these government positions, or in, in a lot of them at least. And so they're saying, hey, you got to do this. The other thing I want to mention, though, um, and I'll kick it back to you on this one because I know you'll, you'll have some fun with this, but that they all, I, I said previously, it almost sounded like, they sounded like people I know, or like just people, they sound like us when they're complaining about, you know, the monotony of these, you know, office jobs or, or computer jobs. And, you know, there was one of the guys that was complaining that so many people are addicted to online or addicted to Twitter. Yeah, addicted to Twitter. <laughs> like they're just hilarious. You know, like, and it's like, yeah, like this. So this that social media stuff gets everybody. <laughs> and so it was, just, it was just interesting, though. Again, like it's the problems that we seem to run into a lot of times with our, you know, from a societal standpoint, fulfillment. You know, are you fulfilled with your job, your career, and all that stuff? It seems like a lot of that has to do more with not not us us as individuals. But the setup, you know, just the way that we are running our society seems to to foster this a little bit. And that's not to say we're doing something wrong. It's not to say we're doing something right. But it's just interesting that when they try, when when these folks try to put fit into a similar structure to what we have, they start having the same complaints that we have here. People have. Yeah. Maybe people just don't like bureaucracies and find them boring, but they well, also people don't like bureaucracies <laughs> yeah. from the inside or the outside. That's but nobody saying, figured but, out a better way, though. Like that, that's gonna- what I was going to say. Yeah. But they appear to be necessary for the functioning of what we, I mean, I guess Western societies in modern time consider a good functioning government. Think about the countries that we as Americans tend to revere in some way or form because of their efficiencies and work ethic and all that. And I'm thinking of countries like Germany and Switzerland and Japan, you know, and countries like that. We tend to look highly at those countries. Wow, they're they're very put together, those people, and they run everything, you know, efficiently. I'm pretty sure 
we would consider their governments big bureaucracies, especially the way we think oh, about yeah. governments oh, in America, gosh. you know. Those and and but we seem to say, wow, those countries are so you know disciplined and well put together and this and that. So my point is, is that it always looks good from the outside, and it's just like anything. I guess if if I said that on a country level, we could say this now maybe on an individual level. People that look like they're in great shape, and you know, it, it looks great from the outside. That looks great, and we all want to be there. But you know what? A lot, lot less people want to put in the work of discipline eating and um, commitment to, to active activity and exercise on a regular basis and all that, right? And yeah. I think it's the same thing with a society. We might look over it and say, oh, that looks cool. But when people actually are asked to conform to a system, um, and yeah. I think we saw this All a of bit those with, places you mentioned just have a lot of rules, you know what yeah. I'm saying? And it's you like- know, If yeah. we look at how they handled the COVID pandemic, for example, now- we could argue all day about who handled it the most effective or who maybe stumbled a bit and all that. But I'm sure as Americans, we would not have welcomed how those three countries I mentioned handled specifically because yeah. they seem to be a lot more aggressive than our country was. Yeah. Um, and so in some ways, we look up and revere those type of societies. And then in other ways, we don't. And I think it's part of that where just a lot of things always look better from the outside. And I think what this article shows us is even the insurgents... <laughs> And, and 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 the jihadists have their limits, right? They it looks good from the outside to go take over a country. It looks fun. Yeah, it looks it's like cool, hey, we're gonna. That's but, what I meant by the ideals. Like yeah. these guys are idealists. They're they're like, yeah, we're gonna do this. We're gonna set up this religious utopia, and yeah. everybody's gonna pray, you know, five times a day, and all this other stuff. Yeah. And it's like, well, how are you actually gonna do all that stuff? Yeah, like, yeah, you don't. Yeah. It's not just by proclamation. And you the know dude that that has a fridge that needs electricity so the food stays cold so he can feed his kids. You know, at some yeah. point he's not going to be praying five times a day if his electricity's off. Yeah, he's going to yeah, be coming yeah. for you in that in in that in that government office. And so it's it's you know, and you said something interesting. I'll pass it back because maybe you can expound on it. Which is the idea that these guys were being rewarded for being quote unquote loyal to the Taliban. Yeah, and so the Taliban, which. I can appreciate whenever you have, especially this was a war between the Taliban and I would say maybe the moderate Afghans who didn't want the Taliban there. And when we left, you know, clearly the moderates didn't have support anymore um, and all left or, or got killed. And so the the where I'm curious for your kind of further comment is. Like what makes you f make that comment that because these guys are loyal and are rewarded for that, they might be on the wrong seat of the bus for their skill set. And, and why is that bad for the society? Well, no, not. I'll say this. It, my view of that is, and again, that's why I said without judgment. It's just like, yo, it's just an observation. It's like, okay, well, these guys did have a choice on, hey, what kind of life do you want to live? And as you said, the guy 24 years old, he, you know, he, he made his choice within the last five, six, seven, eight years. And he could have joined the the U.S. coalition government or whatever, you know, U.S.-led coalition government and started, you know, stamping things or, you know, become an engineer doing this or that. But he chose. He was like, no, I want to be a jihadist. Like, so this, their selection, the, the fact that they were in the Taliban, they were Taliban fighters, shows a, a shows something about them already, you know, in terms of just what type of person they are. And that, that's not to, again, there's no judgment there. Like, it's, it's the same as, you know, when you turn 18 here, like you can go to college, you can go to the army, you can, there's a lot of things you can do. And a lot of times those, what you choose says stuff about like what interests you, you know? And yeah. so what I'm saying is that in that, and so now you've taken people that when they had a chance to choose the direction of their life, they went one direction. And then now you're saying, okay, okay, guys, we won. So, okay, I, I need people here though that I know 
are, are in it for me and are that I can trust and so forth. So I'm going to stick you here. I'm going to stick you in this bureau, you know, this, this bureaucratic space, this bureaucratic space. Cause I need our, we need our people here. We can't leave the people who we just overthrew in power. Cause they might try to work or under to undermine us or worse yet. Well, I don't know if it's worse or not, but also bad, equally bad. Remember part of the reason why the U S the, the people who were allied with the U S and in, in the government, part of the reason why they failed so quickly after we left is because they were rife with corruption. You know, like yeah. they, these guys were stealing money, you know, like left and right as far as that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, if the Taliban's like, we got to we got to get this corruption out the out, out the paint. The quickest way to do that is to stick the people who you were just in caves with, you know, take on taking on fire, returning fire. Like, I know I can count on this dude. Yo, hey, man, get in here. Make sure nobody's, you know, like make sure these people aren't stealing a bunch of money off the top. You know, so I'm again, I'm, I'm saying this It's probably a good idea for them to do that, you know, and, and so but it's just it, it reveals, though, when they start complaining, like, yeah, man, this this is trash, man. I didn't want to <laughs> sign up for jihad to be doing all this. It makes sense. I, I get it. You know, but it it's just one of those things. It's we hear often that the revolutionaries aren't always the one that f- finished the revolution, so to speak, because people want stability at a certain point. Yeah. And so now these guys are faced with the challenge of, of providing stability and we can, you know, slap, smile and laugh or whatever. But I, I, I um, can respect that they're making this effort, you know, to, to try to, 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 to bring some level of, of accountability and order or to maintain it at least. And, you know, to, to, to do that, I can respect that. Cause it's like, yeah, that, yeah. that's what you got to well, do. If you're going to step into that, that seat. It, it goes back to the conversation we had just in recent weeks. Um, I don't think it was a show topic, but we brought it up that um, the, the, the Taliban, um, you know, when they were, they recently banned girls from all school. Yeah. Um, not just university or high school, just like all education. And what I found interesting when I was reading about it was the infighting within the Taliban. Yeah. Um, that there's, you know, there are moderates who understand that the world is looking at them and at Afghanistan right now and trying to figure out how to deal with a country that is, you know, one of probably the poorest and and and, and um, uh, has one of the lowest levels of infrastructure, all that kind of stuff that we know. Not a ton of natural resources. Yeah. Like, yeah. And they know that they're going to need, you know, to deal with the, the IMF and the World Bank and other countries lending them money for infrastructure build and doing trade deals, you know, to whatever they can export and what they need to import. And the moderates understand that the rest of the world will frown and on them. By the way, hold on, hold on. Uh-huh. When you say moderates, you're talking about the moderate Taliban. Yeah. You know, like not the not the people that they threw out, but like actually people of the Taliban that were like, yo, we got to do things a different way. Like like any group, they have yeah, people yeah. that are, no, yeah, it's, go ahead. It's, 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 you know, yeah, they're Muslim, they're this, they're that, but they are more moderate in their way of thinking in terms of how they want to engage the world. And they understand that news headlines that say, the Taliban's girl, banning all girls from school forever doesn't look good. And I think that um, it goes back to this governing thing that, and you're right, that the, 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 the kind of forever joke that everyone's heard that, you know, the people that start the revolution aren't the ones that, that either finish it or, or, or kind of are thereafter is because both being a, a, a radical and, and, and turning everything over and upsetting the apple cart in the society and being a moderate who's a bureaucrat that just wants to keep their head down and keep working and, and, and be a bean counter keep things together. It's, yeah. You know, like, two, put things together. Yeah. yeah. They're two different mindsets, period. Yeah. So you, it's almost impossible to have a human being that can do both because, um, and, and especially, and, 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 and probably in the same society, because clearly the radical is going to look at the bureaucrat and the vice versa as, as threats to 
their their own stability, right? And yeah. so and so um so that's and we why see this play out in our own country. You know, where we yeah, yeah. have, you know, like people that are more radical and that literally like you know, sometimes you'll hear them say it like, look, let's just blow it up. Let's just what's, what's the debt ceiling thing. Let's just, you know, have have the U.S. default. And it's like, what? Like that? That's the plan, you yeah. know? And it's like, but so we see that, though. And they're like, I don't care if the U.S. defaults. And then you got the people who are like, hey, well, yeah, yeah, let's make a point. But let's not, you know, like let's not drive the car into the ditch yeah. just because we're mad at the car, you know, or just because we want a nicer car, like, you know, so or whatever. So. We see that play out. And so a lot of times it, it, well, and as as voters, you know, like I think we have to be cognizant of that when we're when there, it's nice that the, the, the radical or the one who is like, yeah, let's just screw all this stuff. A lot of times that is enticing. That is that's like, oh, yeah, let, yeah, I, I agree. I'm mad, too. You know, it, it arouses passion. But if you go too far in that direction, a lot of times then you can flush down the toilet a lot of things that you've built. And in the U.S.'s case, you know, things built over hundreds of years that pe- some people are like right now just willing to flush it all down the toilet because they're not happy about certain things or because they want partisan advantage or they think it'll like. And so and that's that's a lot, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, it, but so it's U.S. voters got to look at it and say, OK, well, is that something? Is that how we want to rock? Well, I think, uh, you know, we just have to be smart enough in this country to cut through the ecosystems and and to see what's what and who's who because well, we've lost. I'll, I'll, yeah, well, we've definitely lost. No, because I was going to say the ecosystem. Has it also it. speaks a lot to our country's infrastructure and and what we've built over time. Because what I'm looking at, what I'm reading, like you said about some of these guys are snipers, some of these guys were commanders, and I also at first I'm thinking while you were talking earlier, I'm thinking in my head, yeah. This is the advantage of having civilian leadership of the military generally in the United States. But then I corrected myself and said, it's actually more nuanced than that because we have a lot of former military people do a great job in this country, whether they join you know, politics and they work as yeah. public service in the government or they work join private corporations and become yeah. leaders in our corporate America. So I thought, so what is it, the difference? And then I thought about... The United States, and I'm sure not, we're not the only country, but we did a great job from early on fusing actually education with our military institutions. So yeah. think about the famous universities we have, like the Citadel, like West Point, like the Naval Academy in Annapolis. I mean, those if you get a degree from any of those three and you don't go into the military, every private corporation is probably wanting to hire you. They're yeah. just well-known universities that teach people good things. And I think... That's something that shouldn't be lost in any of these conversations when we talk about what makes our country um, unique in a, in a special way, in a good way, is that we've been able to, we don't just have a military that's only brute force. We also have a military that's highly intellectually skilled and able to make decisions. And I think we can contrast that, and I know this is now a separate topic, but just with the, the year that Russia's had trying to get Ukraine. That's that that appears well, to be a system that doesn't promote learning intellectualism. Well, they have other issues too, though, yeah. which you've pointed well, out as far as chain of command and how you know they don't give people the opportunity even to be flexible in their feet. But I want to, uh, and we can close up this topic. But I want to just piggyback on your point because I think it was an excellent point that you made. Uh, yeah, and I'll go back to one of the, the 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 quotes from the story where the guy was like, he misses the the jihad because it was you know there was more freedom. You know, more free time and stuff like that. Nobody's going into our military like, wait, yo, I'm going to go to the military so I can get a bunch of free time. You know, and, and it's, <laughs> it's like, you know, you're learning, you're, you're learning intellectually, you know, discipline is very important, stuff like that. And so it's a different kind of setup, so to speak, you know, like and, and part of that is because we are an established power versus 
an insurgent, you know, somebody trying to overthrow an established power. I'm sure that wasn't the the colonial army. You know, it wasn't the case for the colonial army necessarily. If you go back to 1775, you know, or 1777, you know, like, but because we've seen, okay, yeah, have training, having military that's well trained, and you know, having having the intellectual, having the, the the life skills, so to speak, all that stuff translates into all these other fields. And so, yeah, it, it's not that you can't look at that as apples to apples here. That's why I think it's more the apples to apples is more of the that idealism political extreme type of thing, you know, like where it's like, yeah, we got to have it. We got to set up our political system exactly the way that we say the exactly what we want. And we'll do anything to make that happen. You know, and that if you look at it from that standpoint, those are the people that if you put them in power in our system, have a hard time you know, adjusting to it and dealing with. It. Well, I, I have to disagree because I would just say that it's from my understanding, it's wokeism. That's the issue with the military, <laughs> not all this sick plants and all that. So, you know what the issue is, I realize as you're talking, is that um, the Taliban have to deal with wokeism. <laughs> that's why that's why they stopped the girls from going to school, man. Yeah, See? yeah it's, 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 it's pretty too, simple. It is. It is all simple. Yeah, it's, it's all simple. It, yeah, it's there's all even simple. a law about anti-woke. So <laughs> that's gonna solve with the acronyms, man. <laughs> yeah, it'll be solve so, everything. So yeah, I mean, but no, I mean, it, it, that's that's hilarious. But yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's <laughs> it's definitely uh, no, they're dealing with their struggles. Hey, they're dealing is. with their struggles. We're dealing with. No, uh, I know. I just realized, yeah, that the Taliban's got to deal with these woke moderates in there that are upset that maybe girls being uh, not going to school at all ever uh, <laughs> might look bad to the rest of the world and, and cut off some funding. So yeah. you know, everybody's got to deal with this woke stuff. You know, yeah, maybe man, we should go it, learn how the Taliban deals with it. <laughs> That'll be and, interesting. Well, see, they, they, but clearly they're not trained on how to talk about it. You know, when they did these. Interviews. Yeah, they didn't. Yeah. They didn't regurgitate the talk, the right talking points. So we didn't identify that right. They don't way. have our media skill. That's, <laughs> there you go. So, well, I want to jump to our second topic though, uh, and this is more of a. You know, there's several things we want to touch on here because it's just it's several things. It, it's it is Black History Month, and we did want. There were a couple other things we wanted to speak on. We spoke a couple weeks ago just about the teaching of Black History and and kind of the friction that comes along with that. Uh, but there's just some interesting things that have happened, you know, in American history. And so you, we, we so often it's black history as a subset of American history. But when we think about it, we think of it not as a subset as a whole, but as something separate, something that is parallel. But it's always important to remember that this stuff is happening along with and as a part of American history. And so learning black history is learning American history in that sense. And so. We want to look, you know, like first thing we're going to talk about is just all the way back to the, the Revolutionary War. Now, uh, many are aware, but not everyone. Crispus Attucks, the first casualty of the Civil War, was a black man, a radical, you know, was out there trying to, you know, try, trying to get the British troops out of there. And, you know, uh, but black folks had an interesting, blacks in America had an interesting kind of experience during the Revolutionary War because there are some that served with the Americans and there are also some that served with the British. The British was promising freedom. You know, d during that time to to try to get black folks uh, on board with them. But even with that, many, many, many blacks still served at, uh, with the, the Union forces. Well, I guess it wouldn't be the Union at that time. The colonial forces, the American colonial first forces. So, Tunde, you know, just from that in, in that context, the 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 black black Americans in the Revolutionary War. What what's most interesting or stands out to you as far as that history? Um, there's, there's a lot, um, obviously we're not going to cover it all in this yeah, discussion, yeah, but, something, something but, um, no, I just, I mean, even getting reminded of Crispus Attucks being the first casualty of the American revolution and that he's a black man. Like I, I, I had learned that at some point, but it just, you know, wasn't something that was fresh out the tip of my 
brain. Um, and so it just, you know, to your point, right, that in, in preparing for this part of the show, it just was another reminder that um, black participation in the American Revolution was like every other, you know, experience of blacks in this country. It was part of the American story yeah. and part of the like literally the fabric of this country. Uh, woven together by all these different people. And so to your point, like I learned that, you know, you're right, there were 20,000 what they called black loyalists that pledged loyalty to Great Britain, because like you're saying, Great Britain was, um, um, you know, promising freedom for those that were enslaved. And of course, the American colonists did as well, uh, many times. So there were 9,000 what they called black patriots. So what what's interesting is that both sides were jockeying for the participation of blacks. And again, it's just an interesting thing that, that, um, you know, when, when, when times are are scarce and and you need stuff, everybody becomes an ally. And so blacks were being courted by both sides. I found that interesting. And then also the influences of the Spanish and the French as well, because everybody was jockeying to try and get the United States. What stood out to me about this most was that the the armed forces, by and large, at that time, you know, speaking of the American, were integrated. Yeah, <laughs> that it wasn't like they 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 didn't take the time to say, oh, we're going to set up the you know, they got segregated union here, segregated union there. Like they just say, hey, we need men come in here, you know. And apparently, there were it was a no a well known thing that the on on average the black soldiers served a lot longer than than the average soldier you know like yeah. so their their man hours their numbers weren't as high but their man hours spent was a much higher percentage of of contribution which obviously makes a big difference because you, you know experienced people over the course of a war end up being very valuable and so yeah you know like but again this is one of those things that when i look at it, it's like well why do we do black history month or why do we have black history and it's like well a lot of times people aren't aware of this stuff and it's not that you can't tell a an American history without telling history about black folks, but it's just like you can't get an accurate picture a lot of times because Crispus Attucks wasn't just some dude who was walking along on the sidewalk and happened to get catch a stray bullet. Like he was a you know out there, he was an instigator, you know, trying yeah. to you know like pushing against the British troops and all that kind of stuff. Or you know, the, the as you pointed out, the Black Patriots. These are people that were value making valuable contributions the whole time. And that's not when we think of the colonial army or you know everything like that. Because of the way it's presented to us, because of the way we learn about it, we don't think about that as an integrated fighting force. Yeah. But it was, you know? No, and so that's. Uh, no, I was just going to piggyback and say on the, on, on the, the height, uh, one fifth of the uh, Northern Army was black, yeah. uh, the Americans. And um, but what's interesting when you talk about the desegregated nature of the, the, the U.S. experience during the re- revolution, it's kind of fascinating because what I learned in preparing was in 1784 and 1784. 17- 1785, so just after, you know, the revolution a few years after and, and when America was becoming a country, uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts banned blacks from their militaries. And then um, in 19, sorry, 19, in 1792, uh, the U.S. Congress formally excluded blacks from the military. So that's when you started having the segregation immediately on the founding of the country because the country founded in 1789, 1790. So um, two years later. That well, that's was, when they put in the constitution, like basically the constitution, because yeah. he lived under the articles of the Confederate, you know, like for, for a while and that didn't really work. It wasn't strong enough. So that the, no, the I know. It just, it just tells the, you, 
what was on people's mind at that time. Yeah. Like what was important, right? And so it still tells you that unfortunately racism was obviously alive and healthy if in the first two years of the founding of the country, one of the you know, one of the boxes to check was let's 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 get the black guys out of the military. Yeah. Um and part of it too though was um and I can appreciate this, you know, if you're just looking at it from everyone's angle as being human beings, a lot of the whites were nervous to remember 1792 um, slavery was still, you know, heavily enforced in this country. Um, and so, and even in the North, uh, Northern states still had slavery um, in, in, at that point. And so um, there was a lot of whites that were anxious about the idea of training blacks with firearms yeah. and saying, you know, with black people being in the military, they're going to start slave rebellions and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I can appreciate, yeah, I can appreciate that, um, you know, if, 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 if I wasn't a black guy back then, I might have feel the same way, you know, just looking at, cause, and to your point, maybe they did know what they were doing. They well. it, yeah. I, don't know. <laughs> I wasn't hey guys, alive then. But. Hey guys, if we, if we want to keep this gravy train going, we may not want to, you know, we may not want to tell you know, get these guys the, the, the skills to, to, to stand up. But I mean, I think that also reveals though, that. When the when the 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 crisis was on, they didn't worry about that. Yeah, you know, like at least the overriding sentiment wasn't to worry about that. Hey, we got to deal with the crisis, and that shows you that the segregation, the exclusion, that takes effort and wastes resources. You know, like yeah. it's like when 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 you don't have when, when you don't have the time, when you don't have extra time to spend on you know social codes, you know, and 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 you know, like just going through things like that, then you know if you if you don't have the time. Or extra resources to put in a caste system, you just don't worry about it. You just have yeah. it all hands on deck. But then once, okay, yeah, we got got the, the immediate crisis is over. Hey, let's let's now let's go in and 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 put all you know put our laws in as for to to enforce this caste system. So I mean, I think that ultimately, when you look at it, like, like again, it wasn't a a conscious point for them to say we're not we're going to make these integrated. It was like no no no, we need the troops. Yeah, just bring them in. Well, it's kind of like when we did the um, discussion about the Tuskegee Airmen last year. Um, it, the same thing, the necessity of World War II and just needing to win, right, against the Japanese and the, and the Germans. You're fighting a war on two fronts literally, literally across the world. Then all of a sudden, these blacks that were being excluded from being pilots all this time in the U.S. system, um, all of a sudden were given a chance and then excelled, you know? Yeah. And so it's uh, so it's interesting. So Yeah. And so, you know, like, and, and there's more on that, but, you know, we, there was a couple of these we wanted to hit, so I didn't want to be, belabor any one. Um, the second one uh, that I wanted to, to, to kind of run through with you was, you know, like now most people know that, that blacks fought for the United States side. I mean, we call it the union, but I mean, the other side said they weren't part of the United States anymore. So, I mean, they fought for the U.S. in the Civil War. Um, but were you familiar before we we started doing some reading and just kind of looking at how, how familiar, I should say, were you with the story of the Buffalo Soldiers, which, you know, they came after the Civil War. Um, and then continued on really until the, the Truman integrated the, the troops, but more most prominently in the 1800s. And um, what what about them? You know, did you find interesting? You know, just uh, where you, I, you know, how um, familiar were you, and what did you find? Actually, out? was less familiar with them than I was with the uh, American Revolution history, which actually surprised me. I thought um, I thought because uh, you know I've been a fan of the good old Bob Marley song. Uh, yeah, for, yeah, that, that's, for a long that's time. Your initial exposure to it. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, okay, yeah, these guys. So my first. Um, admission of ignorance was I thought that the Buffalo so soldiers were regiments that were fighting during the Civil War. And to the point you just made, um, they were actually formed on September 21st of 1866. 
Yeah. So a full year after the end of the war. And, you know, this is actually a part of American history to me that is actually fascinating. I, I learned a lot in preparing for this segment of the discussion and, um, I'll get through some of it. I'll throw, throw it back before I do. But what I found interesting was not only the history of the Buffalo Soldiers coming post-Civil War, but then the fact that they extended, because really, and this is where, let me just nuance it a bit, because what we just talked about coming out of the Re- American Revolution, mm-hmm. the, 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 you, there were black, segregated black American units for the Union during the war. And just to in mention, the Civil there were, yeah, in the Civil War, sorry. But the, the, the interesting thing to me is that because of segregation and the need to, I guess, have the black soldiers be separate, what happened was the, the Buffalo soldiers were, were a segregated unit. And it wasn't until 1948 when Harry Truman, with an executive order, desegregated the entire U.S. military. You know, the Korean War was the last time that the 24th Regiment fought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's my point. So and the they, Korean that's, War was actually the first since the, you know, because that was that was the war when the integration happened, you know? Yeah, so yeah, they, that was, yeah. So, because Buffalo Soldiers, for the audience, the term Buffalo Soldiers was a nickname given to the black regiments because the during the Indian Wars, literally the Indians called the blacks Buffaloes soldiers because they felt that the black people's hair was like buffalo hair. And so, and so and it that's- started with one, you know, just a little bit of the history. It started with one, but then the term came to, re- to, to refer to many of these regiments that were, they were the, the, the black regiments. Yeah. So it just was intriguing to me that even though I don't think they considered the people fighting in World War II and in the Korean War, Buffalo soldiers, like you're saying, culturally, I think that ended uh, in the early 20th century around the World War I time. But it's just interesting to, to that I learned. I didn't realize that there was still like a segregated reg- regiment in 1948. Like that's yeah. well, yeah. So I think it's just interesting to learn. Yeah, the prominence of it definitely was more of a 19th century, second half of the 19th century. A lot of the, like you said, the Indian Wars, um, even the Spanish American War. Um, that's I think that was when they were most prominent. And what stood out to me about it actually, and what I didn't know, was how intentional and organized that it was as you said i mean this was something that was, it was i thought it was like a remnant you know like oh we had these 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 regiments from the civil war and then they kind of just hung they stuck together and then yeah, that's what I thought. you know i didn't like it no this they set this up it was like okay yeah and this is what we're gonna do with them and you know we, we have some issue here we'll send out those guys and and so forth and so it wasn't some it wasn't some case of charity or 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 tokenism it was like no no no. this is you know we want these this group right here and then and they had to deal with they they were well regarded but they had to deal with you know racism i mean it's still america yeah. but ultimately it was something that it, it, the, the legacy still lives on you know that it's like okay during that time period which is a time period it's a it's a fraught time period you know these are these are black soldiers going around the country as needed you know as, as directed and doing stuff you know and yeah. sometimes Dealing with dealing with just the population of them showing up is part of the, the struggle. But other times it's like, okay, yeah, we got to go take this hill in the Spanish-American War. You guys go do it. You know, so it was, it, it, again, that, that it was so intentional and organized to me was if, if, at the highest levels of the government was something that was most notable about it. Well, and, you know, I got a quick fun fact, um, which I learned in, in researching this. So, <laughs> you know, when the last Buffalo soldier died? Like the last. Uh, well, I mean, I, I I read a lot of the same stuff that you did, um, so I, I think it was 2005 at the age yep. of 111. 
That's it. You yeah. got it right. I, well, I was just making sure. Yeah. I didn't know. If, yeah, I, I have to just, remember. I didn't know if it was 2011 at 105 or or 2005 <laughs> at one. Or at no, one, but it's just it's just but, fascinating yeah. that like you, you and I were already adults, you know, working our careers and stuff, and yeah. and and there was a guy still alive that was a Buffalo soldier. You know, yeah. It, what it does is it reminds you that all this history isn't that far away from all of us. You know, yeah. it's only a few yeah, generations yeah. ago. And but what I also found fascinating because to piggyback on what you said. So, you know, like I mentioned, the, the, the Buffalo Soldiers began in 1866, but in Kansas, right? And so part of the issue was you had a lot of these black soldiers who, number one, like you said, had served in the Union Army. So they had skills. They knew how to handle rifles. They knew how to handle horses. And then you had also a lot of free blacks from southern states who were very skilled cattlemen. Because I learned in reading all this stuff, like the state of Louisiana had a statute during slavery that you had to have at least two Negroes per 100 head of cattle. So for the large plantation owners and all that, you know, it was like by law, they had to put some black dude on their plantation to be in charge of that. So what always intrigued me was what I had learned when I was younger and growing up, but never saw any evidence on, on TV or TV shows. I used to watch like the Lone Ranger, which is um, the idea of black cowboys. Oh, and yeah, so, yeah. and so, um, and not to get into that here, but one thing I learned recently was that um, between 1870 and like 1890, they estimate that 25% of all cowboys in the West, you know, Southwest and Western States were black. Yeah. And for, People like us that born, you know, 1970s and kind of grew up with our modern uh, media exposure of shows and people like John Wayne and the Westerns and stuff that we grew up seeing, that almost seemed like like a lie to me. Like, wow, how could there be that many black people as cowboys? And so, you know, that's a whole different conversation as to maybe why we, yeah, yeah, I mean, we never it, learned that. But what the reason I bring it up is because now it makes sense that that actually seems very plausible because... One of the things, like you said about this was very organized to have these black units around the country. And what intrigued me was that they were all in the West. Yeah. Like I learned the first park rangers were Buffalo soldiers in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Yeah. Predating summer, the National Park Service. But they were correct. like, yo, we need somebody because, to manage the park. Yeah. Buffalo soldiers because yeah. after they had taken some of this land from the Indian tribes, to your point, they needed to just manage the land. Right. Yeah. And, and so these guys were already there. They already knew the land. They knew how to deal with all that stuff. And so... And so the Indian Wars, kind of the main part, lasted from 1867 to the 1890s. Um, I learned that the last battle um, engagement of the Indian Wars, the put I didn't know to realize it went on this late. Um, I think it was called the Yuki uh, tribe. And it was 1918. The Buffalo Soldiers, again, were used to engage the last Native American tribe that went to war with the U.S. government in 1918. Yeah. And what it would, and I'll finish up here because it wasn't just about the Buffalo Soldiers. Again, it's this interest. I did not well educated about this period of American history because I thought, you know, because we kind of have that flyover history of okay, you got the Civil War, eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five, and then boom, you got to World War One. You know, like you yeah. kind of skip yeah. over like sixty seven years and. Then, which is a very eventful 60 or 70 years. Yeah, that's what I'm history. saying. Yeah. So I'm, I'm 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 realizing here, eighteen sixty seven to eighteen nineties. Um, the Indian Wars. So you had 23 medals of honor granted to Buffalo soldiers over that uh, time. Um, five medals of honor during um, uh, the Spanish-American War of 1898. Um, I didn't know this. It's amazing history. There was a war called the Johnson County War in Wyoming 
between small farmers and the large wealthy farmers. Yeah. And they sent the Buffalo soldiers up there to try and quell that. Well, there, there are a lot of those, though, if you, if yeah, you yeah. detail the history of the West. <laughs> but no, um, I mean, that's one note have, that is documented that the black uh, that the Buffalo soldiers had to go go to. And I just yeah. want to make this point again. If you only want to learn American history about in a particular way or about particular a particular narrative or a particular you know group of people, then I guess so be it. But you are purposefully and very much so restricting your gaze, restrict, restricting your vision, your vision. You're not having a full perspective. American history is very broad and there's a lot to learn. And that is why, again, when this stuff, it doesn't automatically or intuitively make it into the curriculum, then it's like, well, hey, you got to make an extra effort to try to bring it in because otherwise it's clearly a blind spot. It's clearly a spot that we're missing. Um, and, and to the point we had just talked about the, the eventful the event, how eventful the the sixty years or so, or fifty years or so from the Civil War to the uh, World War One, but is kind of fly over in terms of how we learn history. One of the most eventful aspects of that, and we've talked about, we did a documentary on the Reconstruction, but you know, is during the Reconstruction the participation of of blacks in the political system, and how that was the first time really that America said, "Hey, we're going to actually have a true representative," you know. It, Everybody gets to vote or, you know, it, it wasn't everybody yet because they still were excluding women. But, you know, all men get to vote. You know, it's not just a, a narrow sliver, so to speak. And the representation around, particularly in the South, because of how you know you had some states where the South, blacks were a majority and representation changed. And it was you had, you know, your 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 first black senators, you know, which we can go through some of those, you know, people in the House representatives so national government, state governments, local governments all throughout there. It's for this period, you know, and it's so like we look at. For example, you know, more recent times, you know, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s and so forth. Like, oh, you know, all of this progress. Well, actually, a lot of that stuff had been done. And, you know, it's documented, it had been done and everything. And, you know, you can get into also how that got undone. But I think you can also just just know that it was there. And I mean, I'm going to kick it to you because I, I want, want to know what about this kind of, you know, like what, what you find interesting, notable, whatever. Well, what's interesting, I mean, again, you learn all this stuff and. I think this is just cool history that every American should embrace. Um, this isn't about how you look as a person or what group you're part of. Um, I just it's find about it America. It's about yeah, the American it's you know, experiment. Yeah, because um, um, Hiram Revels, a gentleman from Mississippi, was the first black senator in the history of the United States. And then between 1870 and 1875, there were three black senators serving in the U.S. Senate. And there were over 2,000 elected, black elected officials around the country in state legislatures, so on and so forth. And so, you know, it's, it's fascinating that between, let's say, that period, 1870 to probably 1890s, maybe 1900, let's just say at the state level, um, you had all these thousands of blacks participating as elected officials um, and you had black citizens that could claim representation, right, in yeah. the U.S. government. And then by, you know, that early period of the 20th century, you had, you know, whether it be Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898, all the way to the Red Summer of 1919 in that period, um, you had a lot of domestic terrorism, which was the way that um, the country dealt with Blacks uh, gaining power and the democracy of America post Civil War actually working. Yeah, and, and I mean, well, that's how it was becoming, undone. It didn't. Yeah. It didn't just fall apart. Like, and you really you date that to 
the Compromise of 1877 yeah. and no, the agreement, right. you know, to remove Union troops from the South because the people in the South weren't crazy about this the whole time. You yeah. know, and, and but there were Union troops stationed in the South after the Civil War until 1877, uh, and, and Hayes, in order to you know, there was a contested election, and then the compromise was that it, that the South would throw their support behind Hayes if he removed or agreed, agreed to remove the troops. Another one of the great, great compromises in American history that dealt with how America was going to deal with Black folks, you know, all the way back to the Three Fifths Compromise, and you know, and so forth. But it, the, the the thing that's interesting to me about that. You had Hiram Revels, the first black senator. He was appointed, but it was it was 1870, you know, in terms of when that was. It was when they were basically bringing back the Southern delegations, you know. And so, like, there was no senator in Mississippi, basically, during the Civil War because Mississippi wasn't there and, and so forth. But, you know, it, it's... Wait, hold on. For the audience, Mississippi was there. I know you didn't mean it that way. Mississippi not, wasn't it, part it, of not the Not from a go- in the government <laughs> yeah, standpoint. I mean, it wasn't yeah. part of the Union. Yeah, yeah, yeah it no, was but, part of another country. But here's the thing, it's it's interesting because as you say that, it 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 is true, right? Like, and that's why history is important, and it's important we learn about our country's history, right? Think about what we're talking about. After the Civil War, the democracy was working, and people were, you know, citizens. There were there were, for example, around half the population of the state of Louisiana was black. After the Civil War, around the 1870s. Um, there was 130,000 registered black voters in that state. And by 1910, that number had fallen to 510 people. And so what happens is, and that's the part, unfortunately, that I think certain Americans just don't want to talk about that history because then the question begs to why. What happened in our country that for, you know, from the early 1900s until after 1965, until it took legislation um, to allow people to participate in their own democracy again, was there was literally zero black representation in the U.S. Congress or the U.S. Senate until the late '60s, early '70s, mm-hmm. after the Civil Rights Act. And I think that's it. I, I want you to to go back a little bit on the 1877 Compromise because in there you see the so the the sowing of the seeds of the cultural wars of today. This idea of the federal government. Why did the South not like the federal government? Because the federal government actually came to the South post-Civil War and tried to create a democracy in the South. Well, no, I mean, it's not just that. It, that the, the federal government did that in the 1870s, 1860s and 1870s. Um, and then it also did that, remember, in the 1950s, 60s and 70s as well yeah. with, the, with desegregation and so forth. And so this state's rights thing. You know, it's not in the abstract. That states' rights is generally about I want the ability to discriminate against black people. Yeah, I mean, is, that's, in that's large part what it's about. Um, and so, and that's what happened when the compromise when 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 the federal troops left and then the compromise of eighteen seventy seven. You know, right then, basically, you started to see the poll taxes, the the grandfather clauses, all of these things put in place to make sure that black folks couldn't vote. Um, and so, you have Blanche K. Bruce. You know, for example, he's the first. African American to serve a full term because Hiram Revels only he served a vacant seat until there was an election. Um, but Blanche Bruce he served from 1875 to 1881, and you have somebody like that. You have you know representatives. You, you had a democracy or you know a, a democratic system working in the United States that was that everybody you know like again based on representation in that sense again because women still weren't allowed to vote, but that people were participating in and that was working. There was nothing wrong with it, and so. Basically, in order for that then to get undone, it, it became a matter of violence. It became a matter of we can't have federal troops preventing us from 
showing up at the polls with guns to prevent people from voting or to enacting these laws and so forth. And so, oh, and, and, you know, you mentioned already one of the more notable ones when you had in Wilmington, North Carolina, you know, a, a government ex- elected by the people that was overthrown, you know, by terrorism completely. And like the, the government was overthrown and then they put another new government in that was a, you know, a, a supremacist, white supremacist and, government. And, so, and that's what I'm saying. I mean, like, I, that would be unbelievable to a lot of Americans hearing that today. Seriously. Like, I think a lot of Americans say, I, I can't believe that that happened in my country. There was an elected local well, that, government. That's happened and, more than once. But and, the thing that's crazy about it. And, no, I, I know it's happened more than once. I'm <laughs> just saying that this is what happens when we don't teach history of our country. And well, somehow. And that's, but that even. And, and maybe I should say this. I love the United States. And I say that seriously. Well, but that, I, that's I, something, I should though. be able to have this conversation without someone saying that I hate my country. Well, but, I love I mean, this country. Being yeah. able to acknowledge what's what happened in the past is something that I mean, it, maybe some people do have a hard time with that. You know, if it's not all roses and, and sunshine, you know, but being able to acknowledge the past is something that's important if you want to be able to adapt and grow. And yeah. so, and maybe if you can't acknowledge the past, that can prevent you from being able to adapt and grow as as time moved on, moves on. But I mean, what you just what we just said about Wilmington isn't much different than the Civil War itself. <laughs> you know, like it's like okay, yeah. They elected well, that dude. It's, we're it's out. interesting. And we're going to take not, up arms against our the country that we were just in to try to take them out. You know, so it's not like it's not much different. It's the the violence it, that it come into blows basically over these issues is something that's very much a part of American history. You know, and so well, I know. And, but I want to. Well, that's what I was just going to say. That number one, that's why once you read this kind of history, it actually. To me, it, it's, it, 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 it helps and gives a calming effect for some of the stuff I see today. Not calming because like, I think it's fine and it's okay, but more like you, it allows one to say, okay, this isn't the first time we've had people trying to carry out political violence or people trying to um, be aggressive in how they think elections should be playing out, blah, 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 blah. So this, this goes back to saying, okay, we're a collection of human beings and this is democracy is messy. This is what it looks like in a certain way. The second thing is going back to this thing about the federal troops and, and, and how the country deals with black participation in the democracy and in the society. It's amazing that we're still having these discussions today. That's really what I'm, what, what I'm, what I'm getting at is it just shows you how close we still are. I mean, we still have, well, but you think can about also it. look Two, at the last three years, we had arguments about Confederate Flags and statues. But you can look at that another way, though. Yeah. You can look at it and say it's amazing, but you can also look at that that it's inevitable because of the resistance to learning about it. Yeah. If you resist learning about stuff like this, then of course you are going to be unable to grow and become and be be bigger. You can't learn the lessons that America has already learned. You have to go through the same fight again. Because you refuse to learn what happened, so then you can learn and grow from it in terms of the lessons that our nation as a whole has already learned from. And that what doesn't work, what yeah. is antithetical to the, the spirit of our nation. We know all the answers, but you got to learn about that stuff and learn how that stuff played out and be willing to grow in order to really take advantage of that. And so that's from the standpoint of the fight against the teaching of history. You know, that's the unfortunate piece is that it basically it allows people to, to make us have to relive all this stuff again. And I yeah. mean, this stuff is there's a lot of crazy stuff that can happen when you have to. Relive. Yeah. There's a lot of crazy stuff that has happened. And so well, and also this stuff, not only is it a waste of time, waste of energy and prevent the nation from re- reaching its true, per- true, true potential. But it also is something that is it potentially could take us into darker times that the nation has experienced before and 
been able to come out of. And, you know, so I mean, is that the direction we want to go? You know, like, or, or do we want to sometimes learn things that may not make us comfortable, you know, but that are a part of the experience, a part of the, the platform which America today is built on? Yeah. And I think just to kind of know you, we want to wrap it up here, but it, it, it intrigues me as, as, as I said earlier that, um, that, um, 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 you know, when I said earlier in the show, I mean that I grew up in the United States, <laughs> you know, I'm American and I, I, because of our media and just how things were disseminated to me with watching John Wayne and, um, Clint Eastwood and those guys to watch Westerns with my mom when I was a little kid. And I never would have thought that black people had all that participation in the old West that we clearly have learned that they did. And when you go back to things like we're talking about, the amount of elected officials back in the day, all that, I think just most Americans should want to like feel robbed that they don't have that uh, knowledge. If someone listening to this was like me or you can say, yeah, when I was sitting in my school, when I grew up in the 70s, 80s, whenever, you know, people probably older than us listening to, that I was never taught this stuff. That to me, we're all robbed of the great history of this country if we're not including everybody's conversation in it. And so this is just another moment in our country's history where this type of discussion and, and battle comes up. But the good news is, is that the freedom of speech is still embedded in the Constitution. And so the fact that we're talking about this means that, that it won't be put to bed. Well, that, that's the hope. Then that's the hope why you, you, you want to make sure that it's brought up and that it's spoken about. And that's the part of the reason why you have a Black History Month, because if you don't, if, don't, if not, you run the risk of it disappearing completely. And ultimately, you know, you and I look at so stuff like this as part of America's strength, part of America's yeah. strength to be able to grow, to be able to incorporate so many different types of people, so many different cultures and so forth. Like there's some people and, and I'm, I honestly, this is just, you know, this is just the nature of the world to some degree. But there are some people that don't look at that as America's strength. If you look at America's strength as some as it being some type of uniformity, you know, then you wouldn't look at this stuff as being part of what America makes America exceptional because it can bring all these together. Your America, you would look at America as being exceptional uh, just because of a certain group of people being involved, which is kind of self-defeating because there's all different types of people all over the world. You know, America doesn't have, uh, the only thing America has that most places don't have is diversity, you know, and to the extent that it does, because America set up shop on an ideal and on the, 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 the kind of mindset that, Hey, if you're willing to work, then this is the place for you. And so you get the people from all over to come like that. And so are you, are you saying that our imperfections are what make us great? I'm saying our ability <laughs> to to persevere through them it can be great again. Is what yeah is what makes us <laughs> it makes us great. Make America great again. Exactly. <laughs> that, does that mean we just got to repeat all these struggles? That I'm not sure which hopefully, one is. Now, hopefully we can learn from them and stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. That'd be the goal, you know. And so ultimately, though, it, it that that's not a given. We have to be willing to learn. So, I don't know. I just go want to. I, I just want to go touch a buffalo and make sure that its hair feels like mine. That's <laughs> that's what I'm curious about. I got. To go out to the Great Plains. See what now. the Native Americans I'll, are talking about. I'll, I'll see. What, I'll see you later. Right. <laughs> Sounds good, man. Well, I think we can close it up from here. Uh, we appreciate appreciate everybody for joining us on this episode of Call Like I See It. Subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review it, tell us what you think, send it to a friend. Until next time, I'm James Keys. Um, I'm a Buffalo Soldier. All right, but I'm not a Dreadlock Rasta. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>